Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. And if I were to go back and to talk to my 18-year-old self, first of all, I would just like look him in the eyes and just be like, keep going. It's going to work out great. The expert views the world because they understand the world much better through the lens of limitations. Whereas the amateur, no matter the age, views the world through a lens of possibility. And that's the most powerful way to view any problem. Insecurities are a natural part of the human experience. And it wasn't until the past few years that I realized they are part of me. And I've been using so much of my energy fighting a part of myself. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Alex Benayan. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at Alex Benayan. So who is Alex? Alex is a nationally best-selling business author under 30 in America. His book, The Third Door, subtitled The Wild Quest to Uncover How the World's Most Successful People Launch Their Careers, has been translated into more than a dozen languages. And over the course of his unprecedented seven-year journey, Benayan interviewed the most innovative leaders of the past half century, Bill Gates, Lady Gaga, Larry King, Maya Angelou, Steve Wozniak, Jane Goodall, Jessica Alba, Quincy Jones. You get the idea. So here's the story. The day before his freshman year final exams, Benayan hacked the prices right. He won a sailboat, sold it, and used the money to fund his larger-than-life adventure. Since then, Benayan has been named Forbes 30 Under 30 list, Business Insider's Most Powerful People Under 30, and he's been featured in major media, including The Washington Post, 
Forbes, CNBC, MSNBC, Fox, and NBC News. He's now an acclaimed keynote speaker, and he has presented his third door framework to business conferences, corporate leadership teams around the world in places like Apple, Google, Nike, IBM, Snapchat, Salesforce, and Disney. Okay, so I wanted to have him on the show because number one, he hacked the prices right, and that's just cool. Number two, he's obsessed about uncovering unusual tactics that people have done to become successful. And number three, he's probably the best storyteller I've ever heard. So I learned a lot from him. You're going to love this episode. Um, A lot of people have been asking me about private coaching, and I'm working with a select few people now that are ready to make a change in their life. Not thinking about it, but ready to make a change. If you fall into that category, go to workhardplayhardcoaching.com, complete an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, please enjoy this conversation with Alex Benayan. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You know, man, I am so excited to do this interview with you. You know why? Because you are probably one of the best storytellers that I have ever heard next to. I'm about to give you a big compliment here okay. next to Larry King and Cal Fussman. I mean, that is, you. That is a very, very high honor. <laughs> No, no, I'm serious. I I know. I, 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 know. I, I look up to them tremendously. I mean, they're just incredible. So basically, the, the show is going to be in three parts. The first is we're going to talk about the science of achievement and how you've been able to accomplish what you did to create your book, The Third Door, which we'll get into. And then we're going to talk about the art of fulfillment and what you've learned from your research on how to feel more fulfilled. And then we will wrap it up with some rapid fire questions. Cool? Sounds awesome. So I think we will start at the beginning. For many people listening, the only reference that they have to what growing up in LA as a Persian Jewish young man from Iran is like is (laughs) what they may have seen by watching the Shaws of Sunset. Can you paint a picture <laughs> of what your world was like, say, 10 to 15 years old? Huh. When I was 10, you know, so like you said, my, my parents and my grandparents, you know, came from Iran and came to America as refugees. And pretty much from as soon as I was born, you know, I came out of the womb, essentially, and my mom cradle me in her arms, and then she stamped MD on my ass and just sent me on my way. And, you know, you think it's funny, but in third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween. And, uh, you know, in kindergarten, my mom, instead of putting, you know, finger paintings on the refrigerator, she put skeleton charts. So that was my childhood growing up. So awesome. It's very Jewish, too. Yeah, you know, it's, it's super Jewish, super immigrant, man. You know, people come to America really... With a, and again, it's not everyone, but there's a lot of people who come to this country as refugees with a very simple idea that if they sacrifice everything to give their kids, you know, an education, that their kids won't have to suffer the way they suffered. 
Yeah, so they go right to the top, right? It's uh, medical doctor, lawyer, accountant, one of those three. Yeah, really, you know, respectable, admirable, safe, uh, and, you know, it's a wonderful profession in a lot of ways. And right, for so me, wanna, yeah, go ahead. I, I want to ask a question about yeah. um, Persia, because I've heard you reference to being from Persia. And a lot of people that I know from Iran say that they're from Persia. Now I'm 50, I'll be 53. And growing uh-huh. up, I didn't really hear the word Persia a lot. And I grew up in New York and I had a lot of Iranians um, around me and they said that they were from Iran or Iraq or whatever it was. But lately, like I was in Mykonos a couple of weeks ago and I ran to a bunch of girls that were from, you know, when I asked them where they're from, they, they live in Los Angeles, but they're Persian is what they said. And I, know, <laughs> I noticed that, that you say it too. So I learned the term tarantulas now and I understand, <laughs> you know, I, I learned a whole bunch of stuff. But why all of a sudden, like when I, as an American, when I think of Persia, I think of like Aladdin, you know what I mean? And yeah. Islam, like, like why... Why do you say Persia? And is is there like a stigma that's associated with saying Iran or did it change or where did this come from? You know, I'm not an expert on the top of it. What I do know just from my personal experience with my family and the people I grew up with is, people, first of all, it's not like a rule. It's not like an offensive thing or anything like that. I think it's more of just a identity thing. So what I've noticed myself is that People who, you know, there was the Iranian revolution in 1979 where many Jews and even, you know, some Muslims or Christians fled Iran in fear of persecution. So what I've noticed myself is the people who fled in 1979 from the Iranian revolution almost wanted to disassociate themselves from the government of Iran, because that's why they left. You know, they didn't leave happily. Uh, they left, you know, with a lot of you know resentment and pain. So the Persian culture is what they still identified with, not as much as the Iranian government. So they would call themselves, uh, you know, Persians. Uh, as a, Persian is it. almost like a uh, like a cultural identity, and Iran is like the the government and the nation mm. of that land. Um, mm. You know, the Persian empire, you know, dates back, you know, you know, back to, you know, ancient Rome and the, you know, borders are obviously not exactly the same as the current Iranian government. So it's almost like a cultural identification as opposed to like a nationality identification. Um, I got, I knew that there was some, it's subtle. It's in my look, I was about to say it's not that important, but again, I didn't have to flee a revolution. I was lucky enough to be born in the United States. So, you know, I don't want to demean or belittle other people's experiences, especially, you know, my ancestors, my grandparents. But I do think it's interesting just noticing the way people use language and identity to sort of tell you and send you clues of, where they came from and how they feel about where they came from. Well, speaking about where you've come from, your parents came from Iran, but you graduated Beverly Hills High, baby. So, you know, many people listening are making this picture of one more TV reference, Beverly Hills 90210. 
Are there any misconceptions or misunderstandings about what it's really like to go to Beverly Hills High School? You know, again, I can't speak for anyone else's experience except for my own. What I know is that you know, I'm super grateful and extremely fortunate to grow up in such a you know relatively safe and, in many ways, fairly wonderful area to grow up in. At the same time, my family went through a lot of struggles that a lot of other you know American families go through. Um, you know, my parents took two mortgages on the house to help. You know, pay the bills. There were, you know, days I would come home from school and there was a notice on the front door from the gas company that the gas was going to be cut off. And again, by no means, you know, were we so poor that, you know, I couldn't eat. But financial strain was definitely a tension that I grew up with. And I think a lot of that motivated subconsciously the journey for the third door because it was very clear to me by the time I began, began college and you know when I was 18 years old and I realized, okay, maybe being a doctor, you know, I went into college being the pre-med of pre-meds, but very quickly I began to wonder, you know, maybe I'm not on my path. Maybe I'm on a path that somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. And it never even occurred to me that a possibility was to do nothing. So to me, a panic set in of, okay, if it's not being a doctor, what else is there and how else do I do it? You know, And that's when questions naturally begin to evolve in my mind from what I want to do with my life to, all right, even if I don't know, I you know, can't just sit around. And how did, you know, how did Bill Gates, when he was you know, just like me, a random you know, unknown college student sell software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name? Or how did Spielberg, when he was rejected from film school, become the youngest director in Hollywood history? Now, this is what they don't teach you in school. So I just went to the library and started looking for every business book and biography I could in search of answers. And what I was obsessed with wasn't a particular age in life, but more a stage. You know, no one's taking your calls. No one's taking your meetings. How do you find a way to launch your dream? Well, you know, it's it's interesting to fill in some gaps for uh, for the people that aren't familiar with your work. You you decide one day, hey, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't know. Uh, I don't think I want to be the doctor that my parents want me to be, and I, I can't find this information to help me. So I'm going to interview the best of the best, from Gates to Buffett to uh, to Lady Gaga. And, and <laughs> you make it sound I, I, yeah, you make it sound super uh, super casual. <laughs> Well, it's definitely but it, but a very preposterous idea at the time. Well, it was crazy. But my, my question around that is, how would you attempt to explain where the balls came from to even begin a project like that? You know, I think a lot of people in our society are very aware of all of the setbacks of being the amateur. You know, you, the expert has more resources. The expert has you know, more knowledge on the topic area, more expertise. And, you know, the amateur, no one knows their name. No, no one wants to give them the light of day. Usually don't have that many resources. Uh, but what I've learned on my journey is while all those things are true, and trust me, they're extremely, extremely limiting. At the same time, 
something the amateur has that I think is grossly underestimated is the expert views the world because they understand the world much better through the lens of limitations. You know, this is how this institution works and this is how that system works. Whereas the amateur, no matter the age, views the world through a lens of possibility. And that's the most powerful way to view any problem. Yes, for sure. You viewed it, viewed it through possibility, but so many other people would be like, there's no way that this is going to happen. Like I, don't need, like, I don't even believe it's possible. Like, I mean, how did you, how did you step into that possibility and believe in yourself enough I mean, you know, we're, we're bouncing around different topics here because there's so many pieces to this story. And I think, I think part of it is important to, to fill in at this point, which is, you know, you started with bar mitzvah money, right? And then that runs out and you're like, okay, well, I'll go on the prices right. I'll figure out how to hack this thing. And you do. And then you get the money to go in. So, you know, I, what I'm trying to figure out is, is how you were able to have the belief in yourself that you could do this the way you the way that you were able to do this and so many people just don't believe in you know simple goals that they could achieve if they just reverse engineered it yours was so insane but you still believed in yourself enough to do it where do you think that came from like was it a parent's you know, I think the reality is like, you know, again, like I said, number one, you know, I, was, I had this like naive 18 year old thinking of, you know, how hard could it be? And what's funny is I think of it as naive 18 year old thinking, but the reality is I'm, you know, I'm older than 18 right now. And I, I still find, you know, the book has been out for a year now and I still catch myself having that thought, uh, which is actually makes me very happy that it hasn't gone away that much of like, you know, how hard could it be? And the reality is the answer is it's, it's very, 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 very hard. But I think just that almost like childlike, well, you know, we can just figure it out if you, you know, if you work hard enough is very empowering. And I think another thing that's important to share is, you know, I, I appreciate you being extremely complimentary and kind with your question, but the reality is, I was completely terrified. You know, it's really easy in hindsight to just say, oh, you know, I got up and had the courage to just go ahead and do it. Um, the reality is not only was I terrified, I was you know, completely consumed by fear the whole way through. And But in spite of the fear, though, you still walked into the fire. Again, you know, I want to be really, really careful and thoughtful um, to be a bit more uh, realistic about what the journey was like, because I think it's really easy for our, you know, our society, even just this world of you know self development, to use these you know turns of phrases like you know just keep pushing, walk through the fire, and it ignores so much of the reality of what people go through, you know. For me, it was being this 18-year-old completely consumed by fear, completely consumed by insecurities, with immigrant parents who had sacrificed everything, taken two mortgages on the house. It wasn't a small, you know, just let's just walk through the fire 
kind of flip the switch and other people have it, you know, just as harder, even harder. I know a lot of people who are working two jobs and paying for their, you know, mother's chemo treatments or someone whose brother is, you know, suicidal and addicted to opioids. And like, I think it's really important when you're talking about the nuances of what it takes to go out and achieve a dream while it's super important to focus on the high level of the courage that's needed and the audacity to go after something that you, in theory, have no right you know, to be in that arena. While it's so important to really shine a light on the beauty of that courage, at the same time, it's super important to acknowledge the, the dirt, the hard reality that a lot of people are in because I think looking at either of them individually without acknowledging the other is a great disservice to people who are currently thinking about setting off on the journey. I love that. You know, it's so easy now to jump onto a podcast or to watch somebody on YouTube or to go to a seminar and watch, you know, somebody spewing philosophical uh, principles about how to succeed. One of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on the show is because you're not that guy. You're, you're actually the opposite. You're, you're the one that was in the trenches doing the work, but simultaneously you have the humility enough to say, look, dude, it was fucking hard. It wasn't easy and I was terrified. So I love I love the honesty that you have with this. And I first met you in uh, Chris Harder's For the Love of Money Mastermind, and you really just wowed the room, not only with your with your storytelling, but but also with your ability to be super pragmatic about how you approach this, both you know the upsides and the downsides. It's very easy for you to rest on. You could very easily rest on some of these laurels. I mean, your your book now is exploding. There's not an airport I go into where I don't see it, and you are incredibly humble about it. So I just I want to acknowledge that. I, I appreciate that a lot. That means a lot. So I want to talk to you a little bit about something that is just some random question that I have in my head about after you and and in just so you know, in the intro, I've explained a lot of your story and how you know it, basically how you came up with the idea, why you came up with the idea, uh, the price is right, etc. So that we can spend more of our time talking about some of the stuff that people will probably be asking once they hear that story. So, what's the process like after you win the Price is Right? Do they? Do they walk you back? Do they hand you a check? Do, they, do you get a kiss from one of the prices Right girls? How do you deal with the taxes? Walk me through that. I think a lot of people would be curious to know what that's really like when you get the check. Uh, definitely no to all of the above. <laughs> um, strong no. <laughs> okay, what's it like? Well, first of all, you have to understand, I was you know 18 years old and my head was spinning. So it was you know complete you know, whirl. But what I did is, you know, I, as you, you know, as you know, and as you've explained, I, you know, won the, you know, hacked, you know, the show, won the sailboat, sold the sailboat. And that's how I funded the book. And I sold the sailboat for about $16,000, which for a freshman in college is like a million bucks. And, you know, to the point I remember taking all my friends out to lunch to Chipotle. I was, you know, free guacamole for everybody. You know, I really was bawling out. (laughs) And what was great about that is it gave me almost like this 
not only obviously resources to go out and jump on airplanes and you know track down all these you know Bill Gates, Lady Gaga, Steve Wozniak, Larry King. Like, not only did it give me the resources to go out and do that, and again, it didn't last the whole seven years of this journey, uh, but it did, you know, last a good portion of it. I think what's even more important is it almost gave me this emotional security of like, all right, I have, you know, almost, you know, I have this almost like treasure chest reserve that I'm going to devote fully to this like preposterous idea. Cause God knows, you know, a bank is not giving a loan to an 18 year old kid who says he wants to use the money to go talk to Bill Gates. Like That's not happening. Right. So it gave me this like emotional reserve. Like, okay, this is, this is that money to go make this happen. And again, it doesn't matter what that is, whether that's, you know, having some money from a game show, if that's having, whether it's a romantic partner or a family member, someone who's really, you know, gives you that strength and that, uh, that boost. I do think that, or a mentor, someone uh, who gives you that encouragement that just go start. And I think the biggest reason people don't go after their dreams is not... Who was... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, when you, when, you finally, when you finally win it, who was the first one that you called? Uh, I didn't call anyone because you're not allowed to call anyone. That's the first con. That's the, you signed this contract. But when the show you know, did air, obviously, you know, I told my family and uh, my mom and dad were really excited. My sister's really excited. My friends you know, thought I was like, messing with them. It... It was fun. I'm just sort of like closing my eyes right now and reflecting back on that time. It, you know, also, there's no way I could have even seen where this would go. Uh, but I think that's also the cool part of life. You have no, you know, it's the cool, it's the beautiful part of life. It's the heartbreaking part of life. You have no idea how it's going to unravel. And, you know, if we knew, it probably wouldn't be as, as exciting. No, it wouldn't. If you had to do the whole process all over again, what would you do differently, if anything? The whole the whole seven years of the third door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, knowing what you know now, is there any piece of it? Like, let's say that you've got you know another book, another book coming out, which uh, hopefully you do. W- is there anything that you've taken from this process where you look at it and go, okay, if I had to do this again and you know go through this experience again, here's what I would have done differently, yeah, and here's how I'm yeah. going to Um, I, you know, it's almost two different answers. One is if I had to go back to being 18 and do this, the journey of the third door again, what I would do differently or versus uh, present day, if I were to do another journey uh, similar, like going on another quest and writing a book about it, how I'd do it differently. Yeah, let's do both. If I had to go, I'll do the easier one, which is, you know, if I had to do it now and do it differently. Actually, do you know what's funny? Mm-hmm. The answer is very similar. Because okay. You know, what I learned then is what I'm going to implement in the future. Answer are the same. And if I were to go back and to talk to my 18-year-old self, first of all, I would just like look him in the eyes and just be like, keep going. It's going to work out great. And then what I would say is you don't have to beat yourself up for this to succeed you can still achieve this dream 
and be kind to yourself along the way. How did you beat yourself up while you were going through this process? And I think a lot of people do that. I know I'm one of them. Maybe you can kind of describe how you did that to yourself that you don't want to do in the future. Yeah, you know, it's it's sort of the way I almost grew up to the point where I didn't even, it wasn't like I was consciously beating myself. If someone asked me back then, are you beating yourself up? I would say, no, completely normal. It's almost like until you, my mom always talked about these, you know, side by sides. Until you see what's on the other side, you don't even know what world you've been living in the whole time. Uh, you know, there's that very famous, you know, thought of, you know, do fish even know they're in water? I, you know, to them, it's what's water. Uh, only to us who don't live in water can we see, you know, the fish live in different environments. And it wasn't until, you know, the past few years where I started being a, lo- a lot more thoughtful about, you know, there's this Buddhist thought called matri. And it means loving kindness with oneself. And it wasn't until I started becoming a lot more thoughtful about that. Um, another equivalent for the word is treating yourself with the kindness you would treat your best friend. And it wasn't until I started doing that that I started realizing, oh man, I was really rough. Uh, and I think a big thing that I did, which again stemmed from my childhood of just you know survival mechanisms, was when things get tough, I buckled down and clenched my jaw and stiffened and just uh, pushed through it, which you know, it did lead to, you know, really wonderful things in the end. Uh, but I don't think it's the only way to go. And I, it's actually funny. I was reading something about Bill Gates recently where, you know, he really, you know, just spent, you know, seven hours, you know, seven days a week, you know, 20 hours a day, you know, at the office in those early days. And, you know, he's also made a point of like, you know, maybe you don't have to go a hundred, you know, 50 miles an hour. Maybe you can go like 80 miles an hour and still, you know, get to where you're going. Uh, also at the same time too, I think it's just like an expression of energy. You know, when you're young, that energy feels good in this weird way, but going back in time and especially the, uh, inner self-talk to, uh, having an, a kind inner voice has been one of the most life-altering changes in the past couple of years of my life. How do you... What's different about your self-talk now than, let's say, you know, five or 10 years ago? Look, I definitely... How do you, how do you, yeah. how do you approach it differently? I, a big thing that's been super helpful... If anyone else is going through this, there's a book. If anyone's going through a hard time, particularly, where things like everything in life is sort of falling apart, the best book I can recommend is a book called When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. That book has helped me the most in my lowest and hardest times in life. Therapy has been really helpful. Surrounding yourself with friends who don't criticize themselves or criticize you. Um, because if the people you're surrounding yourself are also criticizing themselves or are also criticizing you or family members, you know, God, you know, it's hard enough to get yourself to stop doing that, but God forbid you have other people reinforcing those, those thoughts or those, uh, perspectives. 
And, you know, a big thing that I've learned from, you know, reading Pema Chodron books, also Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, another wonderful writer. It's spelled T-H-I-C-H, Thich Nhat, N-A-H-A-T, I believe, Thich Nhat Hanh, mm-hmm. is that insecurities are a natural part of the human experience. And what's worse than having insecurities is fighting them. And I spent a lot of my energy for most of my life fighting the insecurities and fighting the fear. And it wasn't until the past few years that I realized they are part of me. And I've been using so much of my energy fighting a part of myself. And what happens when you fight anyone, even just think about a person, think about if you're making a you know, you you were just telling me about you know the hotels you you know were traveling to, and you know if you're checking in and let's say something's not going right, if you fight the person you're talking to, probably just gonna you know either buckle down or get strong. Like they sort of intensify too, and if you treat them with kindness and gentleness, they seem to ease up and they sort of want to help, and your inner workings are somewhat similar, which is when you fight your insecurities and you try to push them away and you try to pretend they don't exist, they just sort of buckle down and intensify. Whereas when you gently acknowledge them and almost pull up a chair for them, they begin to relax and then you can move forward. Yeah, it's kind of like a uh, what you resist persists, right? Exactly. Yeah, I love that. Um, in doing all of the... <laughs> it's like an understatement, though. It's more like, you know, what you resist becomes this crazy monster that controls your entire life. <laughs> well, it does. It does, man. At some, at some point, at some point you, you have to acknowledge that if you keep ignoring the elephant in the room, it's just going to sit on you. So you, you got to stop. You got to stop fighting that. And I love the work that you're doing and the self-awareness that you have around that. In doing all these interviews with you know the best of the best of the best of the best i don't know how to phrase this question so i'll just ask it it's a, it's going to be a lazy question but i think you'll get the idea would you say generally speaking that these individuals you interviewed are happy it's super hard to say you know because i've been a lot of <laughs> you know, just in my personal life, I've been around a lot of people who have these giant smiles, and then you find out much later that they were tremendously depressed at that time. You're around people who might be super chill and you know not super energetic, but you you know get to know them better and you realize how much peace and joy they have in their life. So I mean, I am thoughtful that you know it's hard to you know pin someone down like that, especially people who. You know, I interviewed Bill Gates for an hour. You know, he's not my best friend. Um, and even if it is your best friend, it's, you know, so hard to, you know, say the truth about, you know, what's going on inside of them. What I can say, there were some people that did shine, you know, the light coming out of their eyes shined a bit more. And, you know, a great example of that for me was Steve Wozniak. There was uh, a beautiful joy and exuberance that came out of him, which was really wonderful. Um, 
I think on the spectrum of people who just I've come across within my life who, you know, you want to call, you know, iconic achievers or, you know, however you want to, you know, really well-known leaders, however you want to sort of, you know, name them. I think the people that I ended up interviewing for the third door on the spectrum of, you know, really well-known public figures tended naturally to just fall on the side of people who are on the happier and more content side, just because these were people, if you have to think about it, if I asked, you know, hypothetically, it just makes sense. If I asked, I don't know how many I asked in total, but let's say I asked 300, 500, I have no idea, people to be in this book. And a couple dozen said yes. Who were they saying yes to? They were saying yes to an 18-year-old with no credibility, no experience, didn't work for CNN, didn't work for the New York Times, was writing the first book. They had no idea if my writing was good at all. And they gave their time, their reputation, and their trust solely because I told them that I had this dream that if they all came together, not for press, not to promote anything, but really just to share their best wisdom with the next generation, young people could do so much more. So the people in the third door, the people who said yes to that premise. So it was almost like a self-selecting group of people to a degree. Uh, I don't think that I had the chance to interview uh, people who were really just cutthroat and horrible people because most of them ignored my request. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. That's a really good point. You had or a, you had a said yes to the request and then, you know, changed their mind and canceled on me at the last minute. Yeah. I mean, you had a subset of people that clearly were kind. They were kind enough to be willing to yeah, do this for degree, you know, like Yeah, I've definitely heard stories. You know, if you just Google Bill Gates, there's definitely stories of him doing you know crazy negotiations. I, you know, I think all these people also you know have a life before they met me and have done a lot of stuff. But my experience with them was extremely uh, kind. You know, almost the relaxation of it was surprising for me how relaxed. Bill Gates was talking to me because I've seen other interviews where he is a lot more, you know, composed and energetic and made sense. He has a, he has a daughter my age. So if anything, he was almost talking to the next generation, which was, you know, a really wonderful and cool experience. I feel like I'd piss my pants if I walked into a room to interview Bill Gates. How did you (laughs) deal with your nerves? Uh, They were there, man. They were, they were there on, you know, Full display. There was there were some points where I was, you know, sitting on the couch. You know, I was sitting on this long couch. He was sitting on an armchair next to me, and there were some points where he was talking. And normally, if my mind ever wanders during an interview, I'm like very adamant to just push myself back into the present. You know, listen a hundred percent because that's what makes for a good interview. There were a couple small moments in the interview with Bill Gates where my mind was like. This is fucking insane. Oh, because you're floating out of your body yeah, and looking down on you. Yeah, literally, I would say it was probably the only interview. And I actually let myself like uh, indulge for like 10 seconds. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. It was you're, almost like... You're high-fiving high yourself. Yeah, it, it was almost less a high-five, but it was almost like I was letting myself... Um, and this is the thing too. 
it's sort of, if someone's listening to this, it sort of sounds like Bill Gates was this God and he's a human being. Why is, you know, Alex hyping him up so much? And this is the reality. When I was 18, he was that in my head. I grew up in America, you know, born in 1992. You know, I grew up on like AOL and Microsoft Windows and word processor, you know, in third grade, I went to the computer lab and learned how to use this thing called Microsoft Word and PowerPoint, you know, that was how I grew up. And I, you, you, again, you don't even know how you're raised. You just think it's normal and natural. And when I was 18, Bill Gates was my holy grail interview. I wanted to learn how to succeed. And in the society I grew up in, that to me felt like the holy grail. Um, and it took two years of my life to go and make that dream happen. So I did, you know, soak it up and enjoy. You know, now in hindsight, after, you know, going on that seven-year journey, can I see that he's a human being just like everyone else? And, you know, he's no more human and no more less than anyone else who I'll talk to. But that's the beauty of the journey of the third door. It's the story of an 18-year-old kid who does idolize these people, goes out to learn from them. You know, it's awkward. I'm talking in third person, but it's sort of helpful for me to just almost look at it from a bit of distance. and. It's those transformations of not only how I understand how the world works, but understanding who these people are that has changed my life the oh, most. Yeah. yeah, you nailed it. I mean, that's that's exactly how I see it as well. How how has the success of the book changed you personally? Number one, having a dream come true. And I mean that in the literal sense, where I literally fantasized, dreamed of writing this book where I went and wrote the book I was dreaming of reading and having that help people who I would never meet. Um, you know, the book has come out in 12 languages and there's literally eight-year-olds. It, it's crazy for me to even say this, but there's eight-year-olds in China who have like, you know, their parents have sent me photos of them reading the book late at night or, you know, 15-year-olds on a farm in Spain who are emailing me saying that they read the book and now they're meeting with the richest man in Spain because they use the cult email templates. And then, you know, I go and do a keynote speech for Intuit's annual meeting and the CEO of Intuit says that the book changed his life. Like that is something that it doesn't matter. And again, I'm not going to pretend like I don't care about material things, but at the same time, when you're on your deathbed or when I, I again, I can only speak for myself. This is something no one can take away from me. Um, so it adds a level of fulfillment and gratification that almost adds this like beautiful layer uh, onto my present and even into my future. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, what a what a beautiful gift it is. Are you are you friends now with any of the people that you interviewed? Uh, yeah, one of the people. His name is Elliot Bisno. The book, or not in the book, and also <laughs> in real life, but he's also one of the main characters in the book. Uh, as one of my best friends, you know, you mentioned, you know, Cal Fussman and Larry King earlier. Uh, you know, I started out chasing Larry King through the grocery store, and then uh, I was able to have breakfast with him over 50 times. Uh, Cal Fussman, you know, became one of my best friends. Cal's daughter is my goddaughter. So it's definitely been one of the great unexpected gifts of this journey. You know, 
When I think about what it must be like for you to be on not just a U.S. tour, but about to, I believe, begin a world tour, and you're going to be walking on stages in you know, Spain, Bulgaria, uh, Italy, China, South Korea, Japan, Vietnam. What are you feeling inside when I say that? This is so cool. Yeah, <laughs> That's, you know, it's a very, very, you know, basic feeling of like, this is so awesome. Do your parents uh, feel that you're successful now or do they still want you to be a doctor? Uh, my mom, I'm very grateful, has also gone through a really beautiful transformation along you know, these seven years. And, you know, in the beginning she was in tears at the even thought that I'd be writing this. And now she's like the most passionate cheerleader of the book. So I couldn't be more grateful. I love that. All right, let's move on to the second half of the show, which is more about fulfillment. I'd like to talk about some things that you're doing to improve areas of your life. What is, and these questions are going to come out of left field and they're sort of like all over the map. So roll with it if you could. What is the new behavior or belief in the last fill in the blank number of years or months that has significantly improved the quality of your life? Hmm. Someone else's problems are not my problems. Hmm. I like that. Can you give me an example of what you mean by that? Uh, a hypothetical would be, let's say you're working with someone and your business partner is having, you know, marital difficulties and you can care for your business partner. You can be there to support, but if there's chaos in you know her life or his life, that doesn't have to mean chaos in your life. Even if you're there, even if you care about the person, you want to support the person. Got it. Are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could even be way back, it doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you've changed uh, your mind about substantially or you've shifted your position? Is there anything like that that comes to mind? Yes. Chronic lower back pain is not a physical malfunction. It is an emotion. It is a result of suppressed emotions. John Sarno? Exactly. Bingo. Yeah. Yeah, we have that in common. And can I tell you something that's really Please. freaking crazy about this? Please. <clears throat> I've been a chiropractor for the last 25 years. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, and I retired to do this mastermind business and podcasting, et cetera. And my back pain was so debilitating that I didn't know what to do. And I was insanely embarrassed because here I was hobbling into the office to treat patients and giving them advice about their disc herniations that I couldn't mm -hmm. heal myself with. Long story short, I had heard about John Sarno's book, How to Heal Back Pain. Yeah. And when I saw everybody from Howard Stern to Larry David talking about how they went to a one-hour lecture and it changed yeah. everything, oh, I was like... God. I was like, you're fucking crazy. Like, this right. is insane. But, but isn't it worth, don't, doesn't it make you think, well, at least it's worth a shot? Well, it didn't because I was in my box of being a chiropractor because if it was worth right. a shot, then my, my entire practice was a, was a sham. And yeah. I had to figure out because what he was talking about, I mean, we can, we can go down a rabbit hole here, but what he was talking about is 
a disc herniation is a very normal thing to have at L3, 4, and 5. Of course. It's very normal. And yet, anybody who has a disc herniation who goes to an MD, a chiropractor, physical therapist, et cetera, they're going to be put on a protocol um, to get rid of that disc herniation and to treat them. And it wasn't until I was on my knees, literally, where I could not go into the office where I read the book within a week, my back pain was gone. And when I start... When I, Isn't it when, the craziest thing, dude? When I ever. start, when I start, dude, the same story, man. When I start people pleasing, perfecting, striving, insecurity, not allowing my emotions, allowing me to feel, boom, it, that backfires up. Um, I can't get off the floor. Boom. Yep. Same way. It's almost like an alarm system. It is an alarm system. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, we could talk about this forever. This is great. Um, but let's get wow, back to I the show. I love that story. I wish, if I can ask you one favor, is to yeah. tell that story more because it is very powerful coming from someone who's a, has a professional, medical trained experience as a chiropractor. Um, Absolutely. That, it would save so many people tremendous pain, tremendous financial hardship because a lot of people spend a lot of money on surgeries. I, I, I had two uh, epidurals. I had an M- MRI, you know, money that, you know, my family, you know, didn't have just floating around, but the world would be better the more medical professionals are talking about this. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. And did you just read the book or did you go through any, any more training? I, I, I read, so this was maybe three years ago when it started, I, three, four years ago, actually. I read the book and the pain reduced like 30 to 50% immediately in that first week, which I was like, <laughs> what the fuck? It's insane. It's insane. And then, and then you're, but it, it didn't, I had, I think the pain is also like relative to like how much you've had it and how deep the issues are and how quickly you're, be, you're able to become self-aware. I was relatively young, so it took me a while. So it took me like three to six months from it. Like it went relatively quickly from like 100% pain to 50% pain, but then it took a long tail of like three to six months of going from like 50% pain to complete zero. So I like read the book a second time. I like watched his like DVD seminar, listened to his audiobook. Because you're really rewiring your entire belief system. And the pain goes away. Yeah. The physical absolute- pain goes away. And do you know what I hate? Someone listening to this is gonna take away the conclusion of, oh, the pain was just in their head, which is not true. No, there's a there's a science a to this. Physical inflammation, like physical pain. The nerves were firing. It was debilitating. I couldn't walk. Yeah. Anybody, anybody who is suffering from back pain, um, have an open mind, read John Sarno's book and do the Healing stuff. Back Pain. That's the name of the book. Yeah. That's the name of the book. Healing Back Pain. There is a mind-body connection that is absolutely indescribable. I'm going to send you, um, after we hang up, I'm going to send you, there's a guy who um, I bought a program and I listened to it. I'm in I'm I'm in Montenegro now, and you know it's it's been uh, it's been a challenge being here. Um, I mean I'm I'm super grateful to be here, but you know I have to like you know I'm I'm having to do podcasts at two o'clock in the morning, and there's a lot of stress. And 
blah, blah, blah. And um, so I found the back pain coming up again. And I'm listening to this guy um, who um, has been a John Sarno coach for like the last 20 years. And he did a whole series on different, it's, it's basically a workshop on, on Sarno from a different perspective because Sarno has passed. Um, and it's what is getting me through when this stuff flares up again. So I'm going to send it to you. I want you to listen to it. Cool. I think you'll love it. Thank you, man. Yeah, you got it. Okay. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Ooh. Wow. I love that. It's good. Kenya. Oh, why? On, on, on safari. I, I went once and it was my favorite place I've ever been. I went with some of my best friends to the Savannah in Kenya for 10 days in the Simbru area. And it was right under the David Matthews range. And it was just it, insane. It was, it was just a bliss that I'd never felt before. And it felt really good. Dude, I love that. If you go to one restaurant before you die, where would you go? <laughs> like I'm dying tomorrow and I have one restaurant meal. Yeah, you, you got one meal and then you're dead. Where you go? This is the thing. I'm going to go. This is the thing. People might argue with this one. I, I won't go somewhere new. I want to go somewhere where I definitely am guaranteed to have like great meal. My favorite meal from any restaurant is brunch at Bill's, which is a restaurant in Sydney, Australia. They have some restaurants in Tokyo and South Korea and Seoul, South Korea. But there's a there's like three of them, I think, in Sydney, Australia. There's only one in the United States in Hawaii. And it is my favorite meal on earth. I love Love that. Okay, awesome. What's the so one far, thing that's so rocking far. your world? I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to find the next one. So far, my young life. <laughs> What's the one thing right now that's rocking your world that has absolutely nothing to do with work? Or Stand-up the third comedy. door, let's say. Oh, comedian. I was are specifically, you doing? No, I'm not. I'm not doing stand-up myself, but I. I love. I'm obsessed with watching it and learning from it and enjoying it. My favorite TV show is right now comedians in cars getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld. Did you uh, did you see the Eddie Murphy one? Oh, so good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> How good was that? Oh my god. Okay. So, we're going to go to the last part of the show, which is the rapid fire round. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you like. It's a first thing that comes to mind round. Right. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Hard conversations. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Rejection. What keeps you up at night? Extended family. What book have you reread the most? Mm, I'm not a huge rereader because I love to read it once really thoroughly and then move on to the next one. Uh, I read slowly on purpose. Uh, I've reread the most... Trying to think if I've even read a book twice or three times. I'm trying to think. I can make it easier. The book I've gifted the most is mm-hmm. When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. Yep, you really love that book. Okay, I wrote that down twice. I'm I'm definitely gonna get that one. What is your guilty pleasure? 
Uh, yeah, Netflix, In Bed, Full Blast, just really soaking up that Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, it's, no, I don't have that much guilt insane. about it, though. But yeah, I think it falls into that category. All right, last question. Let's change things up a bit. What one question would you like to ask me? How are you feeling? Like when you're all, you know, you put the podcast equipment away, you put your, you know, clients away, you're all alone. How are you, how are you doing? I feel really good. Um, if you would have asked me that question a year ago, I would have said, um, I'm anxious, nervous, confused, et cetera. But I made a decision about a year ago that I was going to leave uh, chiropractic. And, and a lot of that had to do with Sarno, if I could be honest. And I was going to be living the life that I really want to be living. I realized that I only have roughly 28 summers left if I you know, live to the average lifespan. And I want to spend them the way I want to spend them. So now I am um, spending my time exactly the way I want to do it. Uh, you know, Very similar to your friend, Elliot Biznow, I want to be able to have experiences for people around the world. Um, I want to um, spend extended periods of time living in Europe. I want to be not punching a clock and with my family. I have a four-year-old daughter that's with me now. I have also have a twenty-year-old, but I have a four-year-old daughter with me. And so, to answer the question, you know, through that lens, I wake up every morning with such a deep sense of gratitude and joy that sometimes I pinch myself and I can't believe I'm living it. So, really, really, for the first time in my life, really happy. That makes me very happy. I'm happy for yeah. you. Now. And thank I you for this. It. You are so welcome. I am um, absolutely thrilled um, to take this time with you. Um, do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? I'm just you know, super grateful that you had me on the show, that people listen this far in. And if they end up, you know, if anyone ends up buying the third door after listening to this, let me know so I can say thank you. You know, Instagram, Twitter, whatever is good for you. It's just at Alex Benayan. And the third door is wherever people like to buy books. So whether that's online, on Amazon, or in bookstores, Barnes & Noble, or on Audible, uh, however you like books, uh, it's there. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you so much, man. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 